This is Salt and Spine. It's not just taking things down. It's not just simplifying. Right. It's being smart about it and being actually kind of brilliant about it. Yeah. And really figuring out what what are the ways that we can take this traditional way of cooking, you know, just throw it out, start again, and get something that tastes better, that's easier. It's not dumbing down the recipe. It's simplifying in order to get something even better, you know? Yeah. And I think that that is what everybody wants. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. You just heard from today's guest, Melissa Clark. Odds are you've cooked a Melissa Clark recipe before. Dubbed by Eater as the gold standard for internet recipe writing, Melissa has been developing recipes for the New York Times for over a decade. In fact, a quick glance at New York Times cooking shows 1,391 results for Melissa Clark recipes. Wowza. She was drawn to food from an early age, and Melissa pursued a career in food writing. In the 90s, she got her first New York Times series called Food Chain, in which she'd answer readers' cooking questions. As we discuss in our chat, it was a crucial resource for many. Recall that this was pre-Google, pre-Alexa, pre-YouTube. Today, she's still writing advice and recipes, as well as reported stories for the Times, where her column, A Good Appetite, features everything from a reinvented crab dip to her best instant pot recipes. Fashioning herself as a voice of the home cook, both then and now, Melissa has gone on to become one of the most respected cookbook authors. To date, she's written more than 40 cookbooks, both on her own and as well as with collaborators like Danielle Balud, David Booley, and Claudia Fleming. Her 2017 home cooking tome, Dinner Changing the Game, brought forth over 200 recipes for inventive, interesting meals, and she's following it up with her latest, Dinner in One, which does just what the title says, gives you dinner in one pan, one pot, one sheet pan, one whatever. With a career spent translating chefy recipes for us home cooks, Melissa continues to do what she does best, simple, craveable, creative, with dinner and one. In our show today, we're talking with Melissa about growing up with food-loving parents and how she became a Francophile at an early age, about how she landed at the New York Times and has called it home for the last couple of decades, and how dining out helps inspire her recipe development process. And of course, we're putting her to the test in our signature culinary game. Paid subscribers will receive access to two delicious recipes from Melissa's latest book. Later this week on our Substack, you'll find recipes for roasted cauliflower and potatoes with harissa yogurt and toasted almonds, as well as Melissa's recipe for ricotta olive oil pound cake. You can subscribe for just a few dollars a month to receive bonus recipes and special content like essays, Q&As with chefs and authors, and author-read excerpts from the cookbooks we feature. And now let's head to our studio at San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, where Melissa Clark joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Melissa. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. It is a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. I was um, thinking this morning, actually, when we launched this podcast five years ago, we put together a list of 10 cookbook authors who would make incredible guests, and you are one of the 10. And we're slowly chipping away (gasps) at the list. So uh, it's so wonderful we made this work, and I'm I'm so glad you could join us here in our studio. So we're here to talk about your latest cookbook, Dinner in One, um, but we'll get back to that in a minute because we always like to talk a little bit more about you and your life in your career. So let's just go all the way back to the beginning. Grew up in New York, right? In a a family that was pretty focused on food, right? Both of your parents were big food lovers. Yes, they were obsessed. They were hardcore foodies. You know, it was funny. My father grew up kosher. 
Okay. So he, um, and my grandmother was a good cook, but he wasn't a foodie really until he left and went to college. And okay. he and my mother, and my mother, her mother, my grandmother on her side was not a great cook. So it, okay. they kind of discovered it together when they were both college students. Um, and it, it just, it was the, it was this moment of Julia Child, you know, bringing sure. French cuisine to the United States. They were right there. They were cooking out of her book. They were learning together. It was their love language and it became uh-huh. our family language. Yeah. It, it seems like it was really a central focus for the family, the family love language, as you say. And you also spent with your parents summers in France as a child. Um, and I know your parents would, you know, go out and eat at Michelin starred restaurants and sometimes you got to go, right? But it was really just that experience of being in France that I think also really changed how you think about food and opened your eyes to food in some ways. Well, I mean, it wasn't the, uh, the, a change really. It was just okay. the, the early education. That is, sure. that's how my life was. I mean, I grew up, I, I grew up thinking that, of course, you went to the market and bought your food every day and then made dinner because sure. that's what we did in France. And sure. when I was, you know, in my New York life, I didn't cook. I didn't, I, I wasn't really in touch with the food we were eating. You know, it was, um, my parents were both busy. They worked really late hours. They were psychiatrists. So they saw patients into the evening. Sure. So my uh-huh. sister and I would eat earlier. Um, you know, we had a, um, a babysitter who would, you know, heat up stuff for us. And, I, I, it was almost only when I was in France where I really thought about the deliciousness of what I was eating and where food made sense. It was part of our, um, it was just part of our day to day life in Brooklyn with my parents. Food was a special occasion thing. Again, it was okay. definitely our family, you know, way that we communicated. We ate out a lot. Okay. Um, and on weekends we would, we would cook, but it was in France where it just made sense to me that food was part of every single day and every day you went shopping and every day you cook something and every day you thought about it. And I mean, to me, I was like, Oh, well, this is how it should be. You know, this is how I want to live my life. Yeah. Uh And so you, you have this interest in food that you you get from that, you know, experience, those experiences from your family, you start to work in tangentially related ways to food, right? I think before you graduate high school, you're already working at, D, the first Dean and DeLuca, right? Oh, yeah. God, that was wow. when you, you were went like way 15, back. 16, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I got this after school job in high school at Dean okay. and DeLuca, which uh-huh. was, uh, you know, fancy gourmet shop, just one little gourmet shop in Soho before they became this big chain. Sure. It was this one little shop, and it was really the only place in New York. Well, not the only place, but one of the only places in New York where you got things like, you know, white truffles. Sure. You know, super fancy gourmet shop. I got to try everything. Um, wow. It was. Yeah. It was amazing. And my, my, all of our, you know, all my coworkers, we were all obsessed with food. Sure. We were making these sandwiches for lunch where I would have, you know, gorgonzola, um, on this beautiful seeded bread. And I'd never had, you know, a sandwich like that before, you know, especially the Italian stuff was new for me because uh-huh. um, it was sure. used to French stuff. So, sure. um, and we were just all talking about food all the time. The shop was located in Soho. So we would also walk down to Chinatown and okay. it was this milieu of, just foodie obsessed people. And we we're all together. We were all, you know, I was the youngest. I was in high school, but most sure. everybody who worked there, they were in their early 20s. Sure. And it was this, my first sort of peer community of like-minded foodies, all of us just trying everything and getting yeah. really excited about what was on the shelves. So you're, you're 16-ish and is, uh, it's, you know, a high school job, right? Yep. But, but at that point, is it also sort of a career inclination to you? Or are you still just like interested in food, but not quite sure what you're going to do. Cause you also knew pretty early on you wanted to be a writer as well. I knew I wanted to be a writer. Okay. I didn't know how I was going to apply it. I didn't okay. know that food writing was a thing. I okay. just, it wasn't, this was, um, 
if I was 16, this was in the 80s, right? Okay. So uh-huh. the food writing wasn't, it wasn't like there weren't blogs. There sure. weren't, there were barely, I mean, there were um, magazine food writing. You know, there was Gourmet Magazine. Yeah. And I would right. read that and that was very exciting. Right. I thought maybe I could do something like that. Sure. And there was the New York Times. It was, I think back then it was a living section. Okay. So there were recipes, there were restaurant reviews, but there wasn't food writing the way we think of it today. Yeah. And I didn't think it was a viable career for me. Until I went to um, college. So okay. in high school, I, I, and even early college, I thought, okay, well, I guess I'll be a lawyer. I don't know. I like to talk. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, can, I can argue yeah. with the best of them. <laughs> right. Uh-huh. Um, and then I discovered, I mean, like so many food writers before me and after me, MFK Fisher and uh-huh. Laurie Colwyn. And that happened in college Those, that you yes. discovered? And then I was like, oh, okay, this is what I want to do. Because they were telling bigger stories through food. Food was their lens. It was their metaphor. Yeah. And they saw the world the way I saw the world. And I thought, all right, I'm going to, I want to do that somehow. And I didn't really know if I could make money at it, but I knew that it was going to be a passion and it was something that I was going to pursue. Sure. And you, you ended up even writing your, your thesis. Was this your undergrad thesis uh, on Don Quixote? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this was an undergrad thesis? <laughs> yes. Okay. So, and on food in Don Quixote. Yes, <laughs> so, yes. Like, Sancho Panza and his onions. Yep. Uh, um, but you toyed with culinary school for a little bit, right? Was that pre, pre-college, pre-undergrad? Yeah. So, you know, when I was um, in high school and I was working at Dean and DeLuca, I thought maybe I wanted to be a chef. You uh-huh. know, I thought, wow, you know, um, I love food. I love cooking. I mean, I was cooking you know, again, with my parents and for myself. And so I went to look at the CIA and I thought about going there. Yeah. But it just seemed, um, and I was also working in a restaurant at that point. Another place I was working at was an ice cream shop called Peter's. So Uh I was making ice cream and I was working the brunch shift and we made things like chicken liver omelets which was very daring back then. And I remember... And this is when you're in high school. Yeah, I'm in you're high school and I'm like, a, yes, I'm, <laughs> I am the only brunch chef. Uh-huh. It is a teeny little restaurant. It's like an ice cream place that served, uh, sure. you know. And um, and I'm, I'm baking the carrot cakes off and I'm just doing all these sure. things. And so that's when I thought, oh, I, I loved it. I loved doing it. And I thought, let me look into being a chef. But then when I, I toured CAA and I, and as I worked longer into this brunch shift, I realized... I didn't want to be, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to be on my feet. I wanted to be, I wanted to just um, integrate the writing more, integrate thinking about food more than physically putting it out. You know, it was, I was also, um, I was a little afraid, you know, I was a little afraid of the professional kitchen back then as Mm. well. Uh, You know, I have to tell you, the CIA was a daunting place. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I didn't think that I had what it took. You know, I think back then, especially for women, being a chef was a lot harder than it is now. I mean, it's still hard, but it was it was much harder then. And I didn't like the energy and I didn't think that I was tough enough. Yeah. And so you didn't pursue that route. And it was also the last time you worked in a kitchen, right? At Peter's. You worked in restaurants, but did you ever work in a kitchen again after that? No, that was my last kitchen kitchen job. I had a catering company in college. So, but that was my own. And so that was all like, you know, that was nice energy. Sure. Because I was the boss. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yes. Um, Unless you're too hard on yourself, which actually happens as well. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) So you, you, you're in college, you learn about MFK Fisher, you start studying some of these authors. Is, is that sort of a real turn? point for you then because then you go on to get a master's in uh, your your master's in fine arts but but specifically focused on food writing just on writing just on writing yeah got it yeah you know and again when I was in um, graduate school all of my stories 
centered around food, sure. whether I wanted them to or not. Sure. It, it was just, it was just everywhere. It was in everything. Yeah. And I didn't know what I was really going to do with the MFA. I was working at Columbia at that time. I had, um, gotten a job right after college. I went to Barnard and I got a right. job right after at the School of Social Work at Columbia okay. University. And I was just taking writing courses and I could get them for free because I was uh, working at the university. And so sure. I just loved being in the writing seminar. I loved the MFA process. I loved talking to people about writing. I didn't know what I was going to do. I, again, I, I still didn't, you know, I had discovered MFK Fisher and Lori Colwin, but I still wasn't sure if I could do that for a living. Okay. So everything yeah. was sort of fluid at that point. And, um, and I remember, um, really early on, Time Out New York was just starting up at that point. And uh -huh. a friend of mine from Barnard started working there. And so she gave me these little restaurant reviews to do. And so that really, I was like, all right, you know what? I'm making a little bit of money. Um, I'm in graduate school. I was working at graduates. I was working at the university still. Um, and I was coat checking at restaurants. And so all I was making this, you know, hodgepodge living, but it was great. It yeah. was totally great. Yeah. And then all of a sudden there was this thing called the internet that happened around uh -huh. that time. Yeah. And I had had, a, I had my clips from Time Out New York. I had, you sure. know, my writing from my graduate um, program. And so I started getting work as a content provider, content provider right. about <laughs> food. And it was amazing. I mean, it was probably some of the best. It was just this best moment, I think, to be a food writer because they paid you a dollar or two a word. Right. Yeah. yeah. Back Incredible. in, yeah, yeah. Back in, I mean, this was like in the late nineties. Yeah. Right. And so I could make a living as a food writer and, and it that just was a all dollar came together. For online content, yeah, not is, for print. No, no. A dollar they per paid, word. yes, online. <laughs> yeah. They don't pay that now. No. And yeah. not only that, they let me write 500 words on squashes. Sure. Like I could write, sure. like, I mean, I could write a 900 word, you know, essay on, um, fresh versus dried cranberries and sure. they would pay me for that. It's sure. amazing. Yeah. That sounds amazing. I know. <laughs> and it, it's around this time when you also work on your first cookbook, right? I mean, now you've worked on dozens and dozens yep. of cookbooks, but the, it's around this time, I think, right? Where you get this call about a bread machine cookbook. It was uh, in grad school, actually, with the Bread Machine Cookbook. So okay. it was all around the same time. Okay, And sure. um, a friend of mine worked at a book packager, and they needed somebody to write a Bread Machine Cookbook, and could I do it in six weeks over my summer? You know, while I wasn't, I wasn't in school. It was a summer vacation. Right. It's like, sure. I'd never seen a Bread Machine. I didn't even really know what they were, but I was like, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I learned early on was just say yes, even if you don't know what you're doing, just yeah. say yes and figure it out. Right. Um, and I did. And I, I remember calling these bread machine companies and asking for if I could have loaner machines. And I had four of them going, you know, at the same time, I, I would wake up at four in the morning to feed the bread machine because sure. they're in four hour cycles. Right. <laughs> it's very good parental training. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, um, and I figured it out and I wrote this little cookbook, which I think it still might be the best selling cookbook I've ever written. <laughs> Still to this day. I think, I don't know. Wow. I have to check some numbers with the yeah. new one, which seems to be doing pretty well. But, but it's uh, up there. Yeah, but it's it, it sold, you know, hundreds of thousands of copies. This itty-bitty little mass-marketed bread machine cookbook. Yeah. Just, it was at the right, you know, time, right place, right sure. price point. Sure. And it just flew off the shelves. Yeah. My sister still uses it, by the way. She loves her bread machine, and she still uses it. In fact, the other day, she said, you know, my copy's falling apart. Do you have another copy I can have? <laughs> Wow. Yeah. I love that. So you, you're, you're writing content for, for websites. You're, you know, 
content creator now you're right you write your first cookbook under your belt this bread machine cookbook at some point you do have like a job offer from the new york times but not to write about food right you get like a news assistant right job offer tell us how you sort of navigate this part and how you land with eventually your your first food chain was your first column right right and i mean they they don't it's not really a column it was a q a and i I remember once i referred to it as a column and they got really mad at me (laughs) (laughs) like no 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 um yes so i was um, I got to know the editor of the then dining section, um, this uh, man named Rick Flast. And okay. I knew him through a friend of a friend who had worked as his assistant on a cookbook. And she went out of town and I filled in for her while she was gone. Okay. So I got to know him. And again, this is in grad school. And then a couple of years later, he comes back and he said, do you want to um, do this little cute? Uh, actually, first he said, do you want to be right a news assistant? We have this job as sure. a news assistant. But if you are a news assistant, it's very rare that you'll ever become a reporter at the Times. Mm. Because that, that, yeah, they're like, they, just, it's just these parallel paths. Sure, okay. And it, it's an administrative job. It's not a journalism job. Okay. And I mean, now I think there's a lot more flexibility and fluidity. But back then it was like, well, if you take this job, you'll have security and you'll work at the New York Times, but you won't be a reporter. Right. And I said no, because yeah. I knew that that wasn't what I wanted to do. And I was also making a living at that. And I was like, I was okay. I was like, you know, sure. I'm doing my thing. And then he said, okay, well, do you want to write this little column? Except it's not a column. This little Q&A <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> called The Food Chain. <laughs> and um, where people actually, you know, wrote letters. Uh-huh. And they put them in envelopes and mailed them to the New York Times with questions about food that I would answer. And we'd put the answers in print. Yeah. And uh, I think my first one was about um, beating egg whites and how okay. to successfully do that. Okay. You know, and again, days before the internet, before you could just go online and figure out everything. Right. If you wanted this answer, you would write to the New York Times. Yeah. It still boggles my mind. That that, that existed. <laughs> that, that exists. I mean, you think <laughs> yeah, of it now, it just seems so crazy. It's like, I know. It's like practically like I was typing it. I mean, we did have computers. I wasn't sure, doing sure. it on a typewriter, but it was <laughs> sure. almost at that point. Yes. Yeah. I know. It's, it's wild to think about these days. Um, so you're writing the food chain, answering reader questions. And, you know, over the course of your career, you've referred to yourself as, you know, of the voice of the home cook or a leading voice of home cooks. And really, if we trace it all the way back to those early days with the food chain, it's always, always sort of been ingrained in your work that you're taking feedback from the audience and responding to, to readers. And is that sort of true that that's always been weaved through your career in that way, woven in? Yeah. yeah. Um, because, you know, I, I did, I got their questions. I knew what people were thinking about. I knew what tripped them up in recipes. Uh-huh. And, um, and also I was a home cook. I mean, maybe because sure. I never got that restaurant training, you know, except for working at Peter's, but sure. I, I never got the, I never went to culinary school. I was a home cook and yeah. um, I'm still a home cook. I am, I never call myself a chef. I'm always that's that's just where my heart is yeah. and that's where my knowledge is yeah so eventually you do get a, a column if we can use the word yes, cor- wait, I, properly actual, right i got an actual column in 2007 2007 and then uh, five or six years later you join as a full-time yep. staff writer columnist um and have been at the times for a while now and also have written over 40 cookbooks yep. right am i right yep 45 40, 45 yeah. okay well over 40 then now at this point so how do you start weaving cookbooks into your career then well the first one you know the bread machine the bread cookbook one, yeah. led to a second one okay the sweet bread or sweet breads in the bread machine and okay. then a third sure. and i so i did a bunch of mass market books which didn't take that long to do sure so i i mean i think i had half a dozen cookbooks under my belt you know 
early on in my yeah. career. But again, these are small little books, you know, yeah. and then I did this other like other book, again, packaged books, um, I think called Caviar and Champagne, which okay. was, sounds okay. very fancy. Uh-huh. I did not get any caviar or any champagne <laughs> from that book, but I got to write about it. Sure. And um, so at that point, I was working at a food magazine called Great American Home Cooking, which okay. you've never heard of because it never actually published. But yeah. I spent two years working on prototypes of this magazine okay. for a big publishing company. Um, it was a European publisher that wanted to break into the market. So they hired a full of amazing staff. Yeah. Amazing people. My coworkers were fantastic. And, um, you know, poached from food and wine magazine and, you know, sure. just re- and really top quality people. And so we created this magazine for two full years. I worked there. I learned so much about how a magazine comes together, how to edit recipes, how to write recipes, how to test them, how to, you know, um, develop them. This was great training for me. Yeah. So, and I'm, I'm having this great education. And then through someone I knew at the magazine, I got a call to see if I wanted to ghostwrite a cookbook with Sylvia Woods, who of mm-hmm. Sylvia's in Harlem, a yeah. very beloved soulful restaurant. Yeah. And they had a writer and all the recipes were done, but the writer couldn't do the voices. Okay. And so, um, um, this friend of theirs had asked if I could come in and just, you know, edit the manuscript and do the voices. Sure. And that was the first time I ghosted a cookbook for a chef. And it was amazing. It was life changing. Yeah. I would go up to Harlem. I was living in Brooklyn. I would take the train up an hour. I would talk to Sylvia, who was so lovely and her family and get all their stories and, you know, tape record them and come home and write them in their voice. Yeah. And she would send me home with, you know, fried chicken, macaroni and cheese and stewed oxtails. Sure. And it would take an hour for me to get home and this hot <laughs> food would be on my lap and I was so hungry yeah, and it right. smelled so good. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But so once I started writing cookbooks with chefs, so that led to other cookbooks with chefs. Sure. And that was an amazing education because you're learning these cooking styles from all of these really incredible cooks. Yeah. And it's like you're in the kitchen next to them and they're showing you what they do. I learned so much. Um and I published many, many cookbooks with chefs. And yeah. I wasn't working on the recipes. So those you can do quickly because you're, you're voicing it. And so I did a lot of those and I worked on those up until I started, um, on staff at the times and then it became a conflict. So I had to give that up, which is a shame because I still, of all the things, I still love working with chefs, the, their energy, their knowledge and just their, the, the breath of what you can learn. You know, there's each one is so different and it's just amazing to just go in their kitchen and see their work, the world from their eyes. Yeah. Well, and and I think you've talked about this before, but as the voice of the home cook, really taking those lessons or those complex recipes in some cases, things that would work in a restaurant kitchen and figuring out how to simplify them for the home cook, I think probably really shaped how you approach developing recipes for home cooks, right? That, that idea of just like simplifying things and how you take a concept and make it really accessible. Yeah, because yeah. chefs don't realize that, you know, they'll have a dish that has like six elements on the plate. Sure. And it's like one element, like that one little salsa verde that's like a nothing to them. It, it can become the whole essence of a dish. Right. And I loved, you know, deconstructing what they did and creating really simple recipes that had a little bit of, you know, that had style, you know, yeah. verb. They were just a little more exciting than other home cook recipes, but they were geared toward the home cook being able to do them, that I was able to do them in my kitchen easily. Yeah. And um, that's still, that's still my bar. Like, can I do this in my kitchen after work 
with sure. my family there and get it on, you know, and get dinner on the table at a reasonable hour without sure. too many dishes. That's just, that is how every recipe that I do now has to still pass that test. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, you talked about learning things from from chefs that you've worked with and, and books that you've written on. And you can tell me if we can't say this and I'll edit it out afterwards. But I heard you give a talk once and you talked about um, your work on a Paula Dean cookbook yes. and that you worked to incorporate fresh ingredients into a lot of recipes that did not have fresh ingredients. And I thought that was so interesting how you as, um, were you a ghostwriter or were you bylined on, on that book? I mean, I was, I was a ghostwriter. Ghost I mean, I, you know, I was with Melissa Clark. So sure, with Melissa Clark. Yeah, okay. So, so that's a ghost. as a, yeah. So, but as a person working under this well-known entity at the time and sort of Yes. using your knowledge and beliefs to sort of skew the the content in a, a more positive way. I don't yeah, know if more like, positive it, is the right phrase. It was phrase, so subversive. Subversive It was, it was, was very subversive. Yes, yeah. So the, again, this was Paula Deen before the Paula Deen scandal. Yeah, right, so right. early Paula Deen. Right. Um, I barely knew her, but I did know that um, I knew that Southern cooking was, I wrote a book with her called The Southern Cooking Bible, and it okay. was her version of Southern Classics. And I knew that I had to keep her, like, there were a few of her recipes that p- fans knew and they really, you know, they were like counting on her for the biscuit mix, sure, so the, you sure. know, the canned biscuits or whatever. But I also knew that a lot of the recipes that she was giving me were um, magazine type recipes that used a lot of convenience foods, they used a lot of canned foods, they used a lot of mixes. Yeah. And I knew that if I changed those recipes and used fresh food instead of using a can of soup, if I made a roux, sure. instead of using um, a biscuit mix, if I made a biscuit, that she wouldn't mind uh-huh. or possibly even notice. Uh-huh. Um, and that I could get people to cook fresh food. And I really, I mean, one of the things I'm really passionate about is not using processed food, especially yeah. I want people to know how to make the thing from scratch. Right. I mean, sometimes, yes, you use some packages, you know, like I use packaged gnocchi for example it's one of my you know stable and you know core ingredients um but i really believe that people should learn how to make it from scratch and there it's not that much harder and if you can do it in a way that's not that much harder why open the can when you can make it fresh and so i throughout the book Whenever I could, I substituted fresh ingredients for canned ingredients. I mean, even things like canned green beans. Why use canned green beans? Sure. Like, why? Right. So I would use fresh green beans, fresh greens, fresh yeah. fresh garlic. You know, I would substitute, you know, um, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't try, I would really try not to change the soul of the recipe. Like I was, but I would work from, I would, you know, I, I looked at Edna Lewis's Southern cookbooks a lot. Sure. Like I, lo- I referenced other um, Southern cooks who were, um, who cooked from fresh ingredients. And I, I, I kind of tried to incorporate those ideas and that was great. And that was totally subversive. And yeah. I love doing that. And um, those books are still out there and people still cook from them. And I, sure. I hope that maybe uh, more people are making things from scratch. You know, yeah. it's a small thing, but it, it made me really happy. I, yes, it, it makes me happy too. I love that you did that. <laughs> As the voice of home cooks, I'm curious what you think are some of the biggest issues facing home cooks today. People who want to cook more feel like, and, and we'll, and then after that, we'll get to dinner and one, because I think there's a lot of things in there that really speak to home yeah. cooks. But what are some of the things that you're hearing from readers or fans in terms of like, how do I get dinner on the table every night? Well, you know, one thing that was really good for home cooks was um, the space given to them during the lockdown of the early pandemic. Sure. You know, we had people who never cooked before starting to cook. And yeah. I hear that a lot. So I feel like for home cooks, the skill, their skill set has 
just gone up a notch. Everybody's yeah. gone up a notch. If you didn't cook before, you can cook something now. If you sure. cooked before, you're probably more comfortable cooking things that you'd never cooked before. Like you, you just, the bar got raised yeah. and that is super exciting. Um, that doesn't solve the problem though of getting home, being exhausted and wanting to get dinner on the table. And I feel like, you know, the, that's the constant challenge is we are tired. We are overcommitted mm -hmm. in our society. Our society, our culture does not leave enough space for us to be in our house and take a moment before we have to plunge into dinner prep. We don't have that half an hour to ourselves, right? Yeah. And um, I, I, that frantic mindset is, I think, the hardest thing for people to overcome. And for me, and I have, I mean, it's, it's the same thing for me, you know, yeah. um, especially on days when I'm, you know, I'm running around, I'm, you know, and I'm not, I often work from home. So in which case, it's a little more relaxed. Sure. And I think more people are able to work from home. Right. So hopefully this helps because then you have more time you can do, you know, start cooking in the afternoon between calls and right. then, you know, between Zoom calls. Yes. Um, you know, start the thing, then you go back to it. And then so cooking isn't so pressured. But one of the things that I try to help people do, and I did this in Dinner Changing the Game, and yeah. I do this even more so in uh, Dinner in One, is... I try to strip out anything extraneous in a recipe. I want to get that recipe down to its nuts and bolts so yeah. that when you make it, you are, there is not one extra pan, one extra movement, one extra thing to chop. I want to organize it in a way that is most streamlined and simple so that you can get really good food on the table. And that's the, the other part of it is that the recipes, there are easier recipes out there in the world. So many easier recipes, sure. but I want the mind to be extra delicious because yeah. you've put work into what you're cooking and you need a payoff and the payoff for your effort needs to be big. Yeah. So it's balancing those two things, which I, is a hallmark of what I do. Um, you know, it's funny. It's I, I, another thing I try to get people to do. And I know that I can do it, but I don't know. I'm trying to have people take the idea of dinner prep, right? And, and instead of thinking of it as a burden, because, I mean, it, it can be, yeah. right? But to think of it as, this is my time. This is my time in the sure. kitchen. And I like cooking on weekends. And I like eating. So why does it feel so stressful in the middle of the week? Yeah. Can I create space for myself in that moment? Can I make cooking dinner every night a pleasurable activity that is my time? Can yeah. I kick my obnoxious, you know, family members who I don't want to hang out with at that moment because <laughs> I need some me time, kick right. them out of the kitchen? Right. Can I put on the music that I want? Can I pour myself a glass of wine? Can I relax right. in and get into the chopping and the blanching or whatever and the like, you know, salting and right. whatever it is? And can I make that a fun instead of burdensome? And that is really what I want to try to get people to do. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to be in the moment with the yeah. lies we lead. Yeah, because yeah. you're like, I mean, it's like, I know I have to call my, I didn't call my mother. I didn't finish that word. I didn't finish right. that email. You know, I got to help my kid with right. my homework. But yet, yes. despite that, can yeah. I create space? Yeah. This idea of simplifying recipes or, or having recipes that are, you know, in this case, one pot, one pan, one cooking utensil, even in dinner, changing the game, just like really um, recipes that are accessible and not complicated or fussy feels like a real trend in food media at large and cookbooks. Yep. And I'm curious, too, because not only are you a prolific cookbook author, but also a New York Times um, staffer. And we've, you know, we just did a great live show with Ali Slagle a few weeks ago. And, um, some of the other folks who are writing a lot of recipes for the New York Times, Eric Kim, feel like a lot of these recipes are trending towards fewer ingredients, shorter 
directions and, and steps and just like m- much more accessible for a busy weeknight. Does that feel true to you too, that it's really trending that way? Yeah, it does. Yeah. But what's what I think what the New York Times, what NYT Cooking does so well, and I think Allie and Eric are such great examples of that, is it's not just taking things down. It's not just simplifying. Right. It's being smart about it and being actually kind of brilliant about it. Yeah. And really figuring out what what are the ways that we can take this traditional way of cooking, you know, just throw it out, start again and get something that tastes better. That's easier. And that's not, it's not dumbing down the recipe. It's simplifying in order to get something even better, you know? And I think that that is what everybody wants. I think, um, you know, at the New York times, we try really hard to do that. I think we're good at it too. I think think we really like, we really work on that. We don't want, I mean, nobody Nobody wants you to have an uninspired dinner, right? And just like looking at some of Allie and Eric's recipes, it just, and all of, all of my colleagues, they're just so smart. Um, using a few ingredients in really smart ways to get great flavor. Sure. So your latest cookbook is Dinner in One. Um, I know the publication date was pushed back a bit, right? Because it ended, <laughs> I feel like everybody, yeah, maybe people who follow cookbooks, right, have heard this story, right? But if you haven't heard the story, it ended up at the bottom of the ocean, um, which is kind of wild after 45 cookbooks that this one. This is definitely the first time this ever happened to me. Yeah, right? I got a call from my editor saying, there's been a storm at sea. I'm like, what? Yeah. What? Uh-huh. what does that have to do with my cookbook? Yes. Because <laughs> you don't think about the fact that books are shipped over on actual big ships and yes, storms right. happen. Right. Right. Well, I'm glad it's here, yes. reprinted in our in our hands. Um, I'm curious if there are you know go to recipes for you in here. Are you a person who actually cooks your own recipes, or are you so busy testing and creating new recipes that you're not really you, there aren't staples in here for you? Um, you know, this is the first book that I've been cooking from a lot. It's really? funny. Okay. I mean, I, usually I don't cook for my own books again because I am always creating something new. But I've had these pockets where I've just had to make dinner. Yeah. And boy, that book has been useful for me. And there's a couple of recipes that I just really like. And I'm like, well, I don't have to change them because I just like them the way right. they are. Right. Um, there is this... Um, yeah, give us a few. Yeah, so there's this chicken. It's chicken thighs with puttanesca green beans. Okay. So, okay, the flavors of puttanesca, you know, right. anchovy, olive, yep. tomato, stewed with the green beans, and the green beans get really soft. Like, we're not talking crunchy Nouvelle Cuisine green beans. We're talking, like, sure. Italian grandma green beans. Sure. They're mm-hmm. soft and flavorful. And then brown chicken thighs on top, and it's garlicky and just so savory. It's one, obviously one pot because it's from dinner and one. It's so easy. I love this dish. And my husband and my child love this dish. That sounds so good. So that is a favorite. Um, then let's see. There's, oh, there's also a, um, a one pot rice and beans, another okay. big favorite in our house. If you turn the heat up right at the end, you'll get crunchy rice at the bottom of the pan. Nice. I love that. And then pickled onions on top, quick pickled onions oh, on top. So good. Delicious. I'm wondering if you could talk about your recipe developing process a bit then and less on like the process side of how you actually like build a recipe, but more on the the front end, the ideation, like mm-hmm. as a person who's you know written so many cookbooks, written so many recipes for publication, how do you stay creative, inventive, fresh when you're thinking about how to, what to approach, what to tackle? I have to eat at restaurants. I must uh-huh. eat at restaurants because they are it's a big. huge way that I get um, inspired, you know, to see sure. what chefs are doing and how I can take that and sure. twist it and make it great for the home cook. Um, reading my colleagues, reading cookbooks, um, going to the farmer's market and buying the thing I've never bought before. Like 
Okay, I had I bought bitter melons the other day. Actually, I got them at my CSA. Okay, I'm gonna tell you, I've never cooked bitter melons. I don't think I have I'm, either. I'm very excited. And you haven't done it yet. Haven't done. No, okay. they're sitting in the fridge. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna do it as soon as I get back okay. from this trip. Um, and uh, you know, and I always encourage people, you know, to to buy the thing they don't know what to do with. So I try to do that for for myself too. You know, yeah. if I'm going shopping, and I see an ingredient I've never seen before, I try to take it home and play with it. Yeah. Um, it's so fun. It's just, you know, like that's a game. Yeah. And then, you know, then you, I mean, and the thing is, like, if you don't know what to do with an ingredient, the internet will tell you it's so easy to do research. So sure. there's just no excuse for not trying something. Sure. On that experimentation front, was there anything as you wrote dinner and one in particular, maybe, or over the course of your career that you just couldn't like make a one pan or one pot meal? I mean, you even... Maybe the answer is no, because you even have a full Thanksgiving dinner or, of <laughs> right. sorts on a sheet pan in dinner and one. But is there anything that you're just like, I can't get that to a place where it fits this this mold? Um, you know, pa- I thought pastas were, were, you know, pasta was just going to be a breaking point. I thought, okay. you know, I'm never going to be able to do that. But there are, I have a chapter of pastas and it works well in certain cases. Um, I mean, I think there are certain pastas, though, that, just are you just need to boil the noodles separate sure. the, the pasta needs to be boiled separately and you need to add them to a frying pan sure you to get that really um just the right texture and the right blend of flavors yeah um yeah i mean there's some things which i don't think everything has to be a one pot meal i think that you can use sometimes it's easier in fact to use two pots yeah. if you don't have to keep taking things out of a pan and putting them on plates and you know so I only made something a one pot meal where it made sense and where yeah. the, the result was good and it was easier than using two pans. Sometimes it is easier to use two pans. Sure. And two is better than five or 10. Oh God, so, yeah. Yeah. Two's, two's not terrible. Um, you know, in this book too, that you're personally eating less meat. You also a few years ago wrote a piece for the times about eating less meat and how home cooks can sort of embrace that philosophy. Um, I'm curious if that's a direction that you're continuing to move more and more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's really important. Um, I think it's really important for our planet. I, I'm less interested in the health aspects of it, although that is important. Also, I do think that eating less meat is more healthful, but I don't, we never ate that much meat that I feel like that's the the primary driver for us. It's climate. And, um, also, I love vegetables and I find them yeah. exciting and I have no problem eating them all the time. Sure. It's just, it's really, it's not a huge shift for us. It's just like, we still love meat. We love steak, uh-huh. but now we eat it maybe once a month, Sure, yeah. you know, instead of whatever, you know, once a week before, once every two weeks, it's just these little shifts. And we, I will use, um, if I'm making a soup, you know, or a chili, you know, I just skew the vegetables or the beans, um, to meat ratio in favor of the vegetable and the beans. Sure. So it doesn't feel radical at all. It yeah. just feels like we're eating great food. We're eating tons of vegetables and grains and just the food that we love. And, um, and really just backing away a little bit for meat. And then when we yeah. do eat meat, it's like, I'm going to get the best. I'm going right. to get like, I'm going to the farmer's market. I am buying, you know, the best raised meat that I can possibly get. Yeah. Um, because, you know, it's a treat. And we yeah. really want to enjoy it. Yeah, I, I love that. I think so many people are moving in that direction. Um, we're a show on cookbooks, so I always like to ask. We've mentioned a couple um, authors, either cookbook authors or other authors, like Lori Colwin and MFK Fisher, and you know, even turning to Edna Lewis when you were working on Southern books. But are there authors that have been really Im- important to you over the course of your career? 
either as, you know, a, a home cook that you just turn to or that you actually turn to from a professional stance in terms of how they approach their their craft. Oh, my God. There are so many, okay. way yeah. too many, yes. but I'm just going to mention a few. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I grew up with French cuisine. Yes. So Julia Child sure. and Jacques Pepin were, uh-huh. and Pierre Frenet, uh-huh. huge in my childhood and, you know, also my my adulthood. Um you know, it's, I, I have these like sort of benchmark books that I, I still go back to when I need to look up something that I don't know. Um, like Julie Sani and Mata Joffrey when yeah. I'm thinking about Indian cooking, you know, it's like, I'll still go back to those books that I bought, sure. you know, in my twenties. Um, Paula Wolfert was hugely mm-hmm. important yeah. to me. Yeah. Um, again, you know, for, for French food. Um, you know, I get asked this question a lot. You'd think I'd have more, you know, answers like at the ready. But there's, I have, I'm, there's so many books. I mean, yeah. uh, Th- those Ro- are great ones. Yeah. Rosalie V. Barenbaum for sure. the cake. I still use her cake, um, recipes for my birthday cake every year. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. The cake Bible. The cake yeah. Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. A wonderful, iconic book. Um, well, last question before we end with our little game. What do you think makes a great cookbook if you had to distill it down? I think well-tested recipes mm-hmm. are hugely important. They're not everything, but they are the bedrock of the cookbook. Sure. It doesn't matter how beautiful your prose is or how clever you are or how beautiful the photos are. The recipes need to work. Yeah. And they, they, that is, and you need to anticipate the pitfalls and you need to stop people sure. from stumbling. So that's the, the first thing. Um, then they need to be, um, you, they need to be a distillation of the cook. You know, you need to, think, hey, I want to hang out with this person. I want to read this cookbook and hang out with this person. This person is my friend. You know, this person is, I'm going to turn to them when I need inspiration, when I have a question, and they're going to be there for me and have the answers. Yeah. Um, It needs a voice. It needs, yeah, it needs, Uh well, a a voice that you want to hang out with. Because, you know. Sure. um, and then, yeah, then, it, I mean, nowadays we need photos, but I don't, yeah. that's to me, that's not a huge, that's not a, a, a deal breaker. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and, and I mean, if it has beautiful prose and it's evocative, that's even better. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, we always end with, I, I could ask you a million more questions if we had a million more hours, um, but we always end with little games. So I thought we would borrow the dinner in one concept and see if we can apply that to a couple rounds of our game here. So there's four decks of cards next to you there. Um, vegetables, of course, are vegetables. Proteins are proteins. Flavors are herbs and spices and things. Uh, and then this, the large blue deck is the secret ingredient pile. So uh, I thought we'd play this kind of like chopped where you can draw one from each stack and that's what you have to work with and we need to get a dinner in one dinner oh on God, the table tonight it. and okay. see if we can do it um so feel free to draw one from each and tell us what you've got okay so protein is tuna okay my vegetable is broccoli this okay. is working out for me mm-hmm. my flavor oh is red pepper flakes this is oh we're, this is good we're, okay, okay we'll see already, what happens with the secret ingredient we're already in a, we're, <laughs> we're in, in a, a sheet place. pan right now i can tell uh-huh. you right now kimchi oh my god this is brilliant this is a great meal no you know we're in a casserole dish we're in a a casserole dish and we're going to take the tuna we're going to confit it with lots of olive oil okay and can i add garlic too Uh uh-huh you have a basic larder you know at the ready i've got my garlic and my ginger and i'm and i've got my olive oil and i have some um my red pepper flakes Uh um and i've got my broccoli which i'm cutting up pretty small because the tuna i want it to cook at the same 
rate as the tuna. Sure. And I'm putting it all in a casserole dish, tuna in the middle, broccoli around the sides. Okay, so it's a tuna steak. It's a tuna steak. It's a tuna steak. It's okay. a tuna steak. Okay. Um, and I think for the kimchi, I think we're going to keep the kimchi as our, it's going to be our special, you know, it's going to be our condiment to have at the end. Right. I'm not going to cook the kimchi because okay. I really like kimchi. I mean, I like it cooked, but I really like it Raw, or maybe, you know, no, we're going to do both. We're going to have half the kimchi is going to be in the, on the bottom of the, the dish. Okay. Yeah. So we have a little bit of, yeah. and then we put everything on top. Uh-huh. And so that's going to get, you know, it's going to get, um, little caramelized, right? At, sure. at, at, yep. In the oven. And then we have the fresh kimchi on top. I love it. It's going to be so good. That sounds great. Okay. Let's do one more. That one, that one was really easy. That was let's easy. See if I we got get an a easy more one. challenging one this okay. time. All right. Tofu. Okay. okay. Still good. Carrots. Tofu and carrots. Okay. That's okay. a little bit hard, but I think I have a plan. Cilantro. Oh, we're okay. good. Okay. I make, so far I'm making a salad. Okay. Kumquat. Oh. Oh, kumquat. Okay. We've got a salad. Oh, we've got a fantastic. Okay. okay. So it's a one pot, but it's still, it, salads count as one pots, right? Because right, I'm going to yeah. use a skillet to fry the tofu. Okay. So I'm going to fry the tofu. I'm going to put some cornstarch on it and I'm going to make it crispy and I'm yep. going to put it in the pan and I'm going to fry it and um, with a little soy sauce too. And it's going to be savory and fried and crispy. Sure. Carrots are going to get grated. Okay. So we have this big thing of grated carrots and they're going to have shallot and it's going to have garlic and it's going to have tons of lime juice Uh and it's going to have a little bit of sesame oil. And then we have the cilantro, like a lot of it, like a whole bunch of cilantro, just leaves put right in there. And then our kumquats, this is brilliant. So the kumquats are going to be thinly sliced. Um, I'm going to do a pinch of sugar okay. and I'm going to do um, a little bit of, um, I'm going to juice some of them. So we'll have some of the kumquat juice, a little bit of sugar and a little bit of salt. And we're going to almost like pickle them. Sure. And we're going to mix those in to the carrot salad. So it's like sure. carrot, kumquat, cilantro, right? With, With the nice shallots. Tofu. So that, yep. Yeah. And then crunchy oh, tofu on top. That. I love that. You, so you either fun. got two easy ones or you're just such a pro that those just like, I love how those just like came out of nowhere for you. <laughs> I, I'm making both of, don't think I'm not making both of those. So as soon as I get back to my kitchen. Okay. Well, I, I would love to see it if you, if you give them a try. Uh, well, thank you so much, Melissa. This was so much fun to have you. Oh, thank you for having me. I love this. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all of our episodes on our Substack, which you can find at saltandspine.substack.com. For just a few dollars a month, you'll find tons of exclusive and bonus content from recipes, cookbook excerpts, essays, and more. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. We also love to see your ratings on Apple Podcasts. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our producer, Cleo Worcester. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen is now offering both digital and in-person classes for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonimo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books, and to Monique Lamas at Hardcover Cook. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. Thank you.